Welcome to the Screenagers podcast. I'm Delaney Rustin, physician and the filmmaker of the Screenagers movies. Today, we're talking about a hard topic, important yet hard, and it has to do with teens and racist activities online. I have the good fortune of interviewing journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Dashka Slater, about her latest book called Accountable, which is the true story of a racist social media account and the teenagers whose lives it changed. Through this complex and emotional story, we will gain practical insights on discussions we can have with youth about these subjects and tools we can give them to help them in their own lives. Before we start, do know that we talk a little bit about specific racist posts. So if you plan to share this episode with your child, you may want to listen to it and decide if it's appropriate for them. Also note that Dashka uses pseudonyms, i.e. fake names, when she refers to specific students in the episode. I want to start with asking what's happening around the country in terms of online blowups with racism. Well, this is really an epidemic. I get a Google alert every day uh, that has a couple of different incidents. Some are online, some are offline. And at the same time, as I travel around going to schools, I tend to ask, is there an incident that has happened at your school? And often they'll say, oh, no, nothing like what was in your book. And I'll say, "Okay, but has there been an incident? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I've got somebody in the principal's office right now. So... Mm Okay, let's dive into the story. Can you summarize this incredible work that you have done to bring forward a really complex story in your amazing book, Accountable? Accountable follows the origins and the impacts of a racist Instagram account at a high school in Albany, California. And it follows it from the perspective of both the people who were targeted by the account who are mostly black girls. And from the perspective of the person who made the account, who was a Korean American boy, and some of the followers of the account who were white, Asian, Latinx, Middle Eastern kids who were in some way, you know, friends or acquaintances of the person who made the account. Mm -hmm. And what happened? So much happened. One of the interesting things is that all of these kids were friends. Uh, Some of them were close friends that spent weekends doing sleepovers at each other's homes. Some of them were more distant acquaintances or even didn't really like each other very much, but they'd all grown up together. They knew each other. And near the start of the book, you follow the moment of the account's discovery when two girls who were friends with one of the boys who followed the account, were hanging out together on the weekend. And the boy showed the girls this account that they didn't know about. It was a secret account. And they were obviously very upset. One of them was pictured on it with a noose drawn around her neck. The posts on the account were extremely racist and extremely upsetting. Images of nooses and lynchings and in extremely racist language. Was it primarily their friends being shown in these really uh, awful kind of depictions? Uh, Actually, no. Uh, There were a few that were targeting particular people, mostly girls. Uh, But there were others that were just kind of generically racist. Mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, jokes about using the N-word, that kind of thing. So it was both, but there were a few girls who were repeatedly pictured. One of them is Andrea in the book. And there was kind of a, a, a beef between her and Charles, who created the account, really quite one-sided. It was really his beef with her. And, and so there's a lot about her. As the news of this account spread, first among Black girls and their friends, and then it went to the administration, which began to investigate. The police were called. Uh, they began to try and decipher who the screen names were and call in the students who had followed the account. It very quickly blew up into a school-wide scandal. And as time progressed, the school, in trying to solve the problem, ended up stirring it up even more through an extremely misguided mediation session in which both sides were put in a room with the girls who had been targeted by the account and their friends. And neither side was at all prepared for how to face each other in the wake of this extreme betrayal. As their meeting went on, the boys were insufficiently apologetic, kind of wanted to explain that they hadn't made the account. The girls did not care about these layers of responsibility at all. They wanted to talk about what it was like to discover that your friends are posting racist things about you behind your back. And this complete failure of anybody to understand uh, the experience of the other, particularly for the boys to understand the experience of the girls, uh, got things very, very heated in the room and ended with the boys being marched out in front of a demonstration of students that was coincidentally happening just outside the mediation room. And things got worse from there. There was this big explosion, sort of a public shaming of the boys, a near riot as things got very out of hand at the school. And uh, one of the boys had his nose broken and others were hit and a car with parents in it was surrounded. Then, predictably, lawsuits. What was interesting is that this was a very racially diverse group of friends and all of the people who followed the account would have said that they were either not racist or explicitly anti-racist. So there was this wild disconnect between how the kids thought of themselves and what they were doing online. And I had a lot of interesting conversations with Charles, who was the person who created the account, about this gulf between his beliefs and his actions. His explanation was complicated But it had to do, I think, with a couple of important points. The first is that they were seeing some very racist and otherwise offensive memes in this category that was then called dank memes or edgy memes. And they had gotten habituated to that kind of quote unquote humor so that they were thinking that this is okay to joke about. And the joke is that it's offensive. It's funny because it's so beyond acceptable. As kids, they are thinking they're fully capable of walking that line. Um, 
not understanding what the origin of that humor is, the memes that they're seeing having come from some pretty bad actors out there um, and having an express interest in radicalizing young people. Uh, They're not aware of that. They just show up. They're seeing it on places like Reddit, on almost every platform, this kind of humor. And the magic of algorithms is that the more you interact with something, the more you see it. And the more you see it, the more normal it begins to seem. Absolutely. And then video games. I think that where video games really comes in is in the language that is used. When I go to high schools, I ask kids to raise their hand if they have heard slurs while playing video games. And if they have played a video game, an online multiplayer situation like Call of Duty, they absolutely have heard racial slurs and homophobic slurs because that is just part and parcel of the language of gaming. And I think one of the things that's difficult is what to do in that situation. When my kid was a young teen playing video games and asked for a mic, I had no idea what was gonna be coming through that headset. And since it was going into his ears and not into the room, I had no idea what he was hearing. But we've since talked about it. And of course he was hearing all that stuff. And part of the job of parents is to know that that's happening and to talk to kids about that language and what they should do. a really difficult question because nobody wants to stop playing the game. If you're in the middle of the game, you are invested in the game. And just because some stranger uses words that are offensive, like the idea of stopping in the middle of a battle is like the worst thing that they can imagine happening. Mm-hmm. They are in this box that they did not create. Yeah. When... Charles created this account. Does he secretly kind of invite people to join? Like, how do these accounts start to happen? Yeah, so the account was made one afternoon when Charles and some of his friends were sitting around trying to crack each other up. And Charles makes a joke at the expense of uh, a Black girl named Anna, who is one of his closest friends. And he gets a laugh from his friends. And he, because... He's a kid who wants to be funny and is trying to figure out how to make the memes that he's seeing online. He wants to be like them, like these creators online who are funny. And so he makes the meme at Anna's expense right there in the grilled cheese shop using a picture of her taken from her Snapchat and shows it to his friends and they laugh and he feels great because his friends think he's funny. And then one of them says, you should make an account just for these kinds of memes. So that's what he does. He makes the account right then and they follow it right then. And then as time goes on, he tells somebody in his Mandarin class, oh, I have this, this secret account, you should follow it and so on. And so he gathers at the end, there's 13 followers besides him. And that leads me to my next question related to bystanders and whatnot, to talk a little bit about what you think are the key points of why the people were in this group, sometimes participating and sometimes just watching it. What are some of the things that we should know as parents and listeners that we can be talking with our kids? 
What I see happening often, particularly in groups of boys, boys are in a little box where they are not allowed to express a whole lot of emotions. Uh, most emotions are considered weak. And so they don't have very much emotional range that's given to them if they are heterosexual, cisgender boys. They, of course, like all humans, want to be close. And so in this group of boys, they were intoxicated by how amazing it felt to all be friends. But they also had this very hierarchical structure where there were top dogs who were always kind of mildly bullying the lower ranked people in the group. Because of that dynamic, there was a sense that if you spoke up against this racist account, uh, which many of them knew was wrong mm -hmm. and felt bad about and unsure and didn't really want to encourage it, but also didn't want to be that guy who says that there is something wrong and have the others turn on him. There's a concept that I think is really germane here, which is the concept of pluralistic ignorance. Pluralistic ignorance is the idea that we think that everybody might hold one opinion. And so we keep our own opinion quiet because we're thinking I'm the only person who disagrees with this. Yet, in fact, if you were to do a poll of everybody in the room or everyone in the friend group, mm -hmm. many people have that same feeling. Mm -hmm. Unless somebody says, I don't like this. I don't feel good about this. You know, this isn't cool, whatever the language of the moment is. But unless somebody speaks up, they will not know. And I would just add to that, that for all humans, you were never sure by people's emotions just by trying to read it. But for boys in particular to be able to ask a friend, like, hey, what are you really feeling about this? That would be a level of vulnerability that's just not encouraged in our society. They haven't been practicing that, you know, in their lives. So it really does take that dialogue to really understand how other people are viewing these things. But given the complexities of these social groups, the ramifications can feel so detrimental because feeling out of a group is one of the, the worst things you can experience as a teen. So you'd rather take this risk being in this group and just hope that it just blows over. Absolutely. To them, as they're imagining it, the idea of their friends not liking them or thinking that they're weak, that is death. It's the same part of the brain lights up as if being attacked by a tiger. I think it's really important to understand what we're asking of kids. Of course, we need to ask it of them. We have to give them the skills and the encouragement and the support to interrupt harmful things when they're happening. But we do have to understand that we are asking something that's really hard and that it's hard for adults too. We've all, I think, in our lives have had a moment where we didn't speak up because we weren't sure that our opinion would be welcome in the room or we didn't want to threaten a relationship that was important to us. And so for kids who are feeling it so much more and have so much less experience, you know, it's a big ask, yeah. an important ask, but still a big one. I keep thinking of Dave Chappelle and other comics, you know, many of them are very offensive. Yeah. There's just a way in our society that there's a lot of tolerability from people who get away with it in different ways. And then we're going to be 
incredibly harsh at times to our young people who adapt that to get that last feeling, which is such a high, that attention of feeling cool and doing something subversive. I just want to touch on that fact. It's something I work with teens a lot about is that you feel a sense of control when you do something you're not supposed to do. Mm-hmm. There's like there's mm-hmm. schools telling me to do all of this and that and that. Well, look, they can't control me to actually just do something that I know is not cool. Because the reality is these kids know, but it also feels it feels kind of adrenaline if you mm-hmm. steal. Like I let them know that there are reasons why these unsavory decisions were made. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. There's a whole lot of factors going on. One is that the transgression feels great. I hadn't thought about it in terms of control, but that makes a lot of sense to me. And also teenagers are wired uh, to be attracted to risk. And so, you know, this is in our society, it's like one of the riskiest things you can do. I had a a girl write me a letter once saying, why do boys always want to touch the electric fence? And, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, sorry, (laughs) not all boys, but some boys are definitely wired to touch that fence. There is that jolt of adrenaline, of excitement that comes from doing something transgressive. One of the difficulties in teaching kids to behave in ways that are not hurtful to other people is that they really don't know yet What is an acceptable level of transgression and with whom? Mm. You know, this kind of time, place and manner, you can have somebody that you're really close to and there's a kind of joking that might be okay between the two of you that wouldn't play well in a larger setting. But also that person might be just sort of gritting their teeth through you making a series of jokes about, say, their weight where you're like, oh, we're good friends, and so we joke this way, Mm. uh, not reading that actually that person is not finding those jokes particularly funny. So there's a lot that kids have to figure out. Yeah. And they might, yeah, they might be hurting and want to instill a little pain. Like, you know, for boys who have short stature, you know, they can be repeatedly getting these type of insults. And you know, it's not just that those boys who are doing that don't think it hurts a little bit. Yeah. But there is some kind of secondary gain of knowing your, again, control and and whatnot, making that person feel bad. And status. They are jockeying for position all the time. And it's one way that they gain status is if they're the funny one who can kind of inflict a little bit of pain on everybody else so that people don't want to tangle with them as much. Oh, good point. Okay, let's talk about the victims, the girls in particular who were recipients of that. And Andrea, can you say what the fallout was? Yeah, Andrea was a girl who was already in pain. She had lost her father just before the start of high school. And so she was already struggling with depression and anxiety and all the repercussions from having a major traumatic loss like that. Mm -hmm. And she was also a kid who did not put up with stuff that she didn't like. Charles and his friends were bullying her friend, Wyatt. And so all of that kind of led her to be the one who was targeted the most by the account When she discovered that she had been targeted, 
it was just such a massive blow to her, uh, both because she was already vulnerable and because it seemed to sort of confirm all her fears that she already had about not fitting in. And so she struggled with major depression. She had a hard time going to school. And this was true across the board with the girls who were targeted, that they uh, felt very disengaged uh, from their school community. They had been photographed at school. uh, So they felt like they were, like somebody could be photographing them at any time. And so very adrenalized just walking into a classroom. And then they were now also famous at school for having been targeted. So it was like this kind of double layer where everybody wants to know about it and has opinions and wants to talk to them about it. And so it's very hard just to feel normal. Um, so Andrea began to really not go to school and you know, just kind of wake up in the morning, start to get dressed and then climb back into bed and, and spend the day in bed. Those are the you know, the major things that I saw across the board, but particularly with Andrea, just anxiety and depression um, and this academic disengagement. And then for some girls, that also resulted in them beginning to struggle academically. Girls who had been doing very well in school suddenly had so much anxiety around the actual academic tasks that they were no longer able to do well in their classes. now accountability. Can you mention the four types of justice and ultimately what you think would have been ideal mm-hmm. to have happened? Four types of justice. So the justice that we are the most familiar with, because it's the one we use in our society, is punitive justice, which is you know an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, do the crime, then do the time. We respond to a misdeed by inflicting pain on the person who caused the harm. The other one that we're familiar with is permissive justice, which is boys will be boys. Let's not make a big deal about it. Uh, Sweeping things under the rug. Um, And this had been employed at the school before. Year after year, there had been different social media accounts uh, that had targeted mostly girls. And there had not been any repercussions from that. So there was this feeling that, like, it's no big deal and... Uh, that boys in particular will be able to get away with this kind of demeaning behavior towards girls. So permissive is very familiar to us and punitive is very familiar. Restorative justice is a third way that I think is becoming more well-known. It's a victim-centered process and it asks who committed the harm and who was harmed. What does the victim need to be restored, that is to feel whole again. And what does the person who caused the harm need to do to re-enter the community with a clean slate? And those are sometimes linked and sometimes not. Sometimes the victim wants an apology. Sometimes the victim does not want an apology. Uh, sometimes the victim wants the, you know, the person who harmed them to do specific things to kind of earn their way back. There are people working with both the person who was harmed and the person who caused the harm to help them figure out what they need to do and then to have some accountability on those steps. And then the fourth is transformative justice. And that looks beyond just the tight circle of the person who was harmed, the person who caused the harm, to look at the surrounding community. 
what is going on in this community that paved the way for these harms to happen. And so in the case of a school, uh, what seems relevant to me is what is the school community like? What is the climate here? How many of these kinds of racist jokes are being made every day in the school by kids that are paving the way or creating a climate where this kind of humor is acceptable? And also just the milieu of their uh, online lives. I mean, one of the campaigns we have away for the day is the idea of taking devices, cell phones, and putting them away for the day. It won't solve everything, but you're decreasing the amount of these possible interactions. In terms of what happened at the school, I know they brought in mediation, which should be a good thing to have mediation. And so I don't want to put that down. Mediation is bringing people together and having both sides really feel understood and feel safe that they can discuss things. It sounds clearly like they didn't prep so that they could really do this in a productive way. It's a story that I've heard a number of times since then. Mm. Uh, I think that restorative justice depends on whether you do it well. And it's a hard thing to do well. It's not one size fits all. It's not just call, you know, the restorative justice hotline the moment there's a problem in your school and they'll come in and put out the fire and leave again. It is a cultural practice that should be part of how the school deals with all its problems, not just identity-based harm. The whole culture of the school has to accept that the way we deal with problems is we try to fix them rather than punish the person who caused the problem. If Every time there's been a conflict in the school, every time there's been a fight or a student mouthing off to a teacher, expulsion and suspension are the way that it's dealt with. And then suddenly, when there's a problem around race or other marginalized identities, now we want to be restorative about it. Well, that's going to feel uh, like BS to the people who are targeted. It's going to feel like they are not being taken seriously. Now we're about the healing. And so that's, again... It's a bigger ask to ask a school to really change the culture and think about how it can fulfill its mission to teach and educate students and help young people do better, become more empathic, more caring, better behaved, all of those things. One of the things that was so touching in the book is one of the people who was a victim targeted actually didn't want the kids to be suspended. Of the the 14 kids who were involved, the creator of the account and the followers, the creator of the account was expelled. All of the followers were suspended for the maximum allowed under California state regulations, which is five days. But many did not return to school ever because of the violence that happened and the general sense that they were not going to be welcomed back into the school community. And so many of them just left and either went to an alternative school or their families just moved. Uh, But what was interesting to me was that it never felt to the girls who had been targeted like enough had happened which is what says to me that punitive justice is in the end hollow because trauma doesn't work like that. You don't just have all your pain go away when somebody else is also hurt. The girls needed so much more support and so many other things. When the 
they tried to do the mediation and it didn't work. The boys were kind of brought out to the back and the students knew the mediation was going to happen. And there was a lot of students who actually got out there to yell at them. I mean, it's just shocking. Like, how did this all happen? That's, um, were you just shocked to learn about that aspect of the story? Well, I wasn't shocked at what the students did because the students were, I think, motivated by a legitimate sense of outrage about what had happened. I always feel that students have the right to react like young people and to protest, to be angry, to be upset, and all of that they were. Uh, But the adults failed to do their job of protecting both the integrity of this mediation process and their actual students who had uh, followed this account. And so the students just put out the word that they were going to not go to class and have this protest and they were going to have it in the in the center of the main building. It just happened that this was where the, the mediation was going to be. And the administration did not move the mediation, nor did they move the student protest. They could have done either one, but they didn't do either. They kind of just let these things unfold side by side. It started out as a silent protest, uh, very peaceful, kids sitting, cross-legged, not speaking. Some had signs, but mostly they were just quietly sitting there. When the account followers were brought out to stand in front of them, the idea was that it was supposed to stay silent, but of course it didn't because, you know, the kids were, uh, kids are emotional. And so they started yelling, not everybody, but some of them were yelling insults and racist and, you know, uh, obscenities and so on. This was a moment when the adults could have intervened, but they did not. result was that the students who had followed the account had their own additional trauma. Some of them became quite anxious and afraid to leave their house and so forth. The kids ended up having to sort of hide and try and run this gauntlet of students to in order to, to leave the building. Oh, gosh. Were they protesting the fact that they were allowed to be back in school or what were they protesting? They were protesting the return of the students from their suspensions. They explicitly said, let's show them that they're not welcome or we don't want racists in our school. Mm. They wanted to protest racism and stick up for their peers who had been targeted. Many schools that are committed to restorative justice do community building circles in their schools because you have to develop those relationships, that closeness and that shared practice before there's a problem so that kids don't think When somebody hurts me, the solution is going to be that they are punished, that kids are instead thinking when somebody hurts me, the outcome that I want is that they don't do it again and they don't do it to anybody else. That is a big change because it's unfamiliar. It's not how we do anything else. But when it is taken seriously in a school, when that is the practice, I think it's a great gift to young people. One of the things that I often say to young people when I am presenting at their schools as I tell them, you are not perfect, but you are good. And I see kids well up when I say it because they're under so much pressure. They're trying so hard to be perfect. And they really need to know that they are going to fail in all kinds of different ways, including morally. They're gonna hurt other people. They're going to be hurt. 
and that this is survivable, that it doesn't mean that they are a bad person, but it means that they need to learn how to do something better, how to be a better communicator, how to be more thoughtful, different skills that they will develop, hopefully, over time. I just want to reiterate that, this idea of you will fail and you will fail morally. Yeah. We don't talk enough about this failing morally, so that is really perfectly stated. Talking about Charles, what I thought was so poignant in the book is that he goes to, was it his sister's house? And he's with Mm -hmm. these teachers. I I got teary-eyed during that section because he got the love that he needed and the conversations that he needed. He seems like he's been able to come forward and be able to talk about it and separate the whole incident of what he did to realize he's not a bad person, but his decisions to do this was not so good. In fact, you know, really, really bad decisions that they gave him a sense of identity and feeling okay about himself so that he could then talk about it. And I feel so hopeful for him. Can you say a little bit about that interaction that he had with these helpful, these adults? Charles has a sister who is a teacher and he he fell into a deep depression after the account was discovered and he was kicked out of school and lost all his friends and, you know, was just kind of stuck. And so she invited him to come and live with her in Florida with her housemates who were all teachers as well. And so everybody's about five years older than him and their teachers. They just kind of gave him the support that he needed and allowed what he had done to be a topic of conversation that was not loaded. And he got the message from them that they still saw him as a worthy human being and they still liked him and they were interested and curious about his experience and were happy to talk to him about that, about race. He really flowered in that environment. To me, it is such a beautiful example of something I talk about quite a bit in the book is difference between shame and guilt. Guilt is the very appropriate message that you get from inside your own body that tells you that you have not lived up to your own standards, that you feel that you have done something wrong. And it is uh, useful, appropriate, we learn from it. Uh, Shame is the idea that you are not a worthy person. And it comes from outside, but is easily absorbed, particularly by young people, this feeling that you are bad through and through and not worthy of love. I think one of the things that's really hard for people in our punitive society to understand is that shame is the enemy of accountability. That to really be able to take in the harm that you've caused to someone and and think about what you can do to make amends and do different, you have to have the support and the love and the self-love to believe yourself capable of that and to have the kind of moral courage and strength to go through that process, which includes really taking in the harm. 
but knowing you're going to still be accepted and belong. Yes. Because otherwise the defensiveness, the, the running away, the blaming the others, the internal punishment becomes so corrosive. You know, and I'll add to that with patients, with my teen patients and adult patients, I bring up the difference of guilt and shame. It's a topic we do have in teenagers under the influence. And they they really like hearing that, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I have gang members and whatnot. It's like what you've done versus who you are. And it, you just see people's eyes light up to have that framework can really make a difference. With the girls, the victims, can you give an example of grace in that situation, something that helped one of them to heal to some degree, at least? I know this never goes fully away. I mean, this is such a traumatic situation. I know it still has repercussions in that yeah, community and, and for those young people. It absolutely did. And it was so world shattering for them because, it, you know, they weren't ignorant. And, you know, they knew, of course, that racism exists, but they thought they were in a safe place. Mm-hmm. They thought they were safe among their friends and in their school. And so the whole sense of safety kind of evaporated. And so there process was not straightforward. It was very different for each Mm -hmm. of them to try and find the way out. What was helpful for each of them was to find a place where their passion and their love of life could flourish. So for Andrea, that was traveling. Did she finish the high school? or She did finish high school, and then she struggled quite a bit about what to do next. And then COVID hit, and so there was a long period also of just not being able to do anything, not being able to leave or launch their lives. Mm-hmm. So that was true for Andrea, just feeling like she was going to be in it forever, and she could not get out and get into you know the next place. But then she did. She had a successful lawsuit that gave her some money to be able to travel. And she went to Guatemala and began to study dream work and metaphysics and all this uh, stuff that she was interested in. And she flowered, she blossomed. She had this opportunity to do some of the healing work that she needed and also to just be away from this context that had been so harmful to her. Mm, That's great. I can't express enough how powerful it would be for all parents to read this book with their teens. It's created to resonate with teens very much the way that it's constructed. And I just think it would bring up such healthy and challenging conversations. Can you say a little bit about how you could see this book being used in the home? It's one of my favorite things when I hear from parents that they read one of my books with their young person. That is so wholesome and so marvelous for a book to be used as a way to forge closeness with a young person and also to have a shared language. I think it's really hard to talk about these things in the abstract to, you know, like, let's talk about social media. But it's much, much easier when you can talk about characters in a book and say, what did you think of like when Charles says that he didn't think it was going to be harmful? If you get that, does that make sense that he was just trying to be funny? And it's an opportunity for the teenager to be able to say, oh, yeah, this is something that I see online all the time. Or all of a sudden they have an expertise to offer and you have a way to ask the question 
in a way that you're not grilling them mm-hmm. or prying um, all those things that get your teenagers' defenses up. Yep. And you say it's about for what age up? I would say middle school up. In addition to that, what are some key messages that parents can be discussing in general with their middle school and high schoolers and even starting younger, of course, around race and identity? Understanding that how you experience the world is not necessarily how somebody else experiences the world. And this was a hard one for Charles because Charles is Korean American. He saw himself as a person of color making jokes with and about other people of color. And it took him a while to understand that the Black experience and the Asian experience are different. And so this is a a concept that kids of all different identities need to develop. Their experience, as valid as it is, is not the only one. So that's number one. Number two is that the internet is not a neutral space. There are forces that are pushing offensive content towards you with the express goal of trying to get you to be comfortable with offensive characterizations and to absorb offensive characterizations and stereotypes and that it's not neutral. And the reason they do that related to the incentive and structures, the more time on and the more offensive and the more yeah. drama related. Yeah. And so the way that these algorithms are designed, if you interact with something, you don't just have to like it or mm-hmm. comment on it or follow the creator. If your eyes linger on it, it is there to absorb all of these behaviors. So if you scroll, if you scroll back, If you watch the video all the way to the end, all of that is information that the algorithm takes in to say, oh, you like this. Let me give you more of it. Or it got your attention. Yes. Yes. It might not like you're not necessarily liking, but you're going, oh, because drama, our brains get attracted to the negatives. Absolutely. Because that gets our attention. And then we get this emotional surge from that. And that makes us want to keep scrolling. And then related to then teens themselves, what are some take home points? If you have a kind of a go-to phrase that you can deploy in the moment, because there's something that happens when somebody says something offensive where your mind just kind of short circuits. You're just like, did I just hear that right? All of your social instincts, mostly what we're trying to do is form connections with people. A lot of times, like by the time your brain has finished processing Everything that's just happened, the moment is past, and you're like, wait, just what happened? I should have said something. So it helps to know what to say in that moment. And it can be very simple, like, I'm not cool with that. I don't agree with that. Dude, that crosses the line. Whatever it is, uh, that's really messed up is the one that Charles, the creator of the account, suggested as something that he would have heard, he would have listened to. And so... I think kids often think, I'm going to have to make a whole speech and I'm going to have to like, no, you really, you can just say one thing. And that often is enough to bring somebody up short and also to give permission to the other people in the room 
who are suffering from pluralistic ignorance yeah. and let them know, oh, I'm not the only person who thought it was not okay. Yeah. And also thinking about the delivery of that, because I've been around teen boys where they'll say that, hey, man, that's not cool, but there's a laughter in it. Right. So it can get, right. it can kind of get dismissed. I get it because it's hard to be really serious, but to be talking with our teens as well, just about tone in general, this concept of saying one thing, but your body language is saying something else. How do you maybe say it a second time in a different place so they get that it wasn't just uh, offhand, oh, uncool man. Yeah. And knowing also who to say it to, mm. that you can sidebar with somebody after the thing has happened and find somebody who has some social power in your group, but who is kind of not somebody who's necessarily going to pick on you. And then I would say the other thing for teenagers is just to develop the critical skills to be able to think about, well, where is this coming from? Because they're bombarded with so much, particularly with videos that are designed to incite emotion. Uh, often our critical skills leave us at that moment when we feel some kind of way about something. And so to be able to actually take a breath and then like, who is this? Who posted this? How do I know that what they're telling me is true? What's their agenda? All of that. Yeah. Being able to hold different truth is developmentally mm -hmm. hard. And as humans, as adults, we have problems with it. But to end on this, what was so beautiful is this idea of forgiveness. One of the girls was able to forgive. Forgiveness takes a lot of uh, mental capacities. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to see that whole old picture. How do we have these discussions with young people to continually help them to see the complexities? And forgiveness isn't an emotion. It's not something we just do. It's a practice of keep checking in with our brains when our brain wants to go, well, no, 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 they really should get in trouble and this and that. And the other part of the brain, we tune in to say, you know what? They were trying to do this for this reasons and they're not bad. And so you're really doing a constant kind of calisthenics with the brain to get to that point, to be able to let go of the anger. I also think that it's not something that we need to ask of people. Like they will get there when they're ready and they may never be ready. And of course, like forgiveness does require that we know that the person who hurt us isn't going to do it again. So it requires some growth and development on the part of the people who cause harm as well. There's sometimes forgiveness can be sort of weaponized of like, why, you know, can't you get over it? Can't you, you know, just why won't you mm -hmm. be more forgiving? And, you know, the person just isn't ready. But what I think we can help them do is to focus on themselves and their needs and how are they going to get through this experience and not fixate on the person who harmed them. Because for all of us, that's very destructive and is a way of keeping the brain in this activated, anxious, vigilant space where you're like collecting evidence of like, see, they did it again. Look at them. They're smiling. That means they don't care. That means they're thinking about hurting me, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Of course, we have to keep our students and our young people safe and we don't want them to relax their vigilance if it's going to harm them. But 
we do, I think, want to help them not re-traumatize themselves by obsessively cataloging all the possible injuries and the day-to-day high school stuff that can feed into just a sense of always being hurt and angry and afraid. Healing practices, I think, are focused within rather than without. Oh, fantastic, Dashka. This has been wonderful. How can people find you and the curriculum and all the things you're doing? I have an incredible website for this book that has lots of resources. It has the curriculum. It it has discussion questions and all kinds of good stuff, as well as lots of information about the book. And it is accountablebook.com. I am just delighted I got all this time with you in this important, important topic. So I want to thank you so very much. Well, thank you so much for having me and for the great work that you're doing with young people around these issues. Oh, thank you, Dashka. That's it for this episode. But do check out ScreenagersMovie.com where you can learn about our three Screenagers movies, sign up for my weekly blog, and get all sorts of other parenting resources. Plus, you'll find the show notes with more information about the guests, the studies, and more. Make sure to follow this podcast to get future episodes and please rate it. The Screenagers podcast is produced by me, your host, Delaney Rustin, Lisa Tab, and Alan Gofinski. Alan also does our sound editing. And a special thank you to Jenny Schmidt for her help in producing this episode. <laughs>